welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hi and welcome to our latest episode of IOM3 Investigates. I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at IOM3 and today I'm joined by Aidan Colby, Baker, Managing Consultant for Material Science, Nuclear Materials at Jacobs and Jack Eaton Mackay, a PhD student looking at the carburisation of steels. So Jack, do you want to kick off and talk us through your education? and tell us how you arrived at this project. Yeah, sure. So, hi everyone. So I did maths and physics and chemistry at A-level, with those subjects being the ones I enjoyed the most. And ever since a young age, I've always been interested in how things work and why they work like they do, really. And so engineering seemed a natural fit for me. So I went to study mechanical engineering at the University of Salford at first. Um, And whilst there studying, um, I actually did a summer placement um, at Jacobs. Uh, which really piqued me interest in looking at uh, nuclear structure materials and in particular um, the nuclear reactors that we've got in the UK, which uh, Jacobs work a lot on. Um, unfortunately, at the end of the summer placement, I was offered a job here, which I took um, early in the career at Jacobs. I registered my interest that I completed in a PhD. Um, however, it took a few years to find the right opportunity, and luckily, I'm glad one did come about. Um, and I managed to, to, to start that and that was probably up four and a half years ago now. Okay, cool. So Aidan, how have you been involved in this and what have been the advantages for you of working with Jack? Yeah, so for me, I, I've always found working with universities as a, as a key way of underpinning particularly mechanistic understanding of, of degradation mechanisms of materials, particularly in nuclear materials where quite often we unable to inspect components or they're very limited means of getting access to the data. So, so we need to develop a mechanistic understanding to, to support justifying service of components for reactors and, and for our clients who operate the reactors. Uh, so yeah, things like PhD projects are a good way of exploring that to, to underpin uh, design properties and, and, and assumptions in safety cases. Okay, so what did the project start out as being? And as I'm sure all our listeners will know, PhD projects often start out as one thing and end up being something completely different. So uh, where did you guys start from and what have you got to as time has gone on? So I mean, my PhD project was heavily linked with the research and development that we were conducting here at Jacobs um, anyway and was fortunate enough to piggyback on the back of that really. Um, and we're combining our capabilities here at Jacobs and the capabilities at the University of Manchester, really. But, I mean, it was well, the PhD project is probably good to set out what it was, really, first. And it was investigating the phenomena that occurs in the UK's nuclear fission advanced gas fuel reactors and the unique these uh, reactors. 
reactors in that they are the only fleet of high temperature civil nuclear reactors in the, in the world and operate at 650 degrees uh, and also use carbon dioxide as the primary gas coolant um, and graphite as the moderator um, and the combination of both the high temperature and the carbon dioxide surface environment can lead to the environmental degradation mechanisms in components such as the boiler pipework uh, and one of those is carbonization which in its essence the ingress of atomic carbon into the steel of, into the surface of the stainless steels um, and the affected surfaces are hardened and embrittled and additionally whilst under the continued AGR operation at elevated temperatures and stresses the boiler pipeworks are susceptible to creep de degradation mechanisms and the combined embrittlement of the carburized components and the creep degradation mechanisms ultimately leads to a reduction in the creep tolerance of those affected components. So the research and development that we were doing at JACOS was, was integral to that to understand the, the actual effects of the combined embrittlement and creep degradation mechanisms. What we did here was to actually pre-expose samples in the AGR surface environment, mechanically test them in a laboratory, and then my PhD was then to use those samples to understand the microstructural phenomena that occurs uh, during carburization, during creep at the University of Manchester. So uh, in essence, my actual PhD, I probably had too many samples to look at, too much to do. Um, so we really had to cut it down and really be specific in what we were looking at uh, because there was a danger that we would get a lot of scope creep because there was a lot of information being generated, a lot of information uh, to compute. So the challenge was to really be quite narrow in what we were looking at. Question there. I mean, carburisation is used as, a, as an engineering tool to improve or impart particular properties to surfaces, like wear resistance, but, but in this case you're saying it's a, a degradation mechanism that's occurring in service? Yeah, for sure. So it hardens uh, the surface of those steels, which in certain engineering applications is desirable. However, the side effects of that, it embrittles those components and when under uh, creep loading conditions, that can lead to a reduction in that creep tolerance for those components, but it is specific uh, to, to, to that environment that we're looking at. How did you guys go about looking at this? Obviously, you can't just take pieces out of an in-service uh, reactor. You know, you need to look at non-destructive testing and so on. And obviously, you've probably been in quite a good position of being able to get hold of out-of-service pieces to look at but what te techniques did you use for that no you're definitely right Catherine so we to try and be representative of what's going in plan we actually used ex-service material um, to investigate the ex-service material but it wasn't removed from the primary coolant loop so it wasn't radioactive it wasn't pre-exposed to the uh, carbon dioxide primary gas coolant it was removed from the secondary coolant circuit so the material is representative of what's actually installed in plant um, and to try and encourage and accelerate the carburization process we did a laboratory process, carburization process whereby we actually prepared the surface of the samples um, to a mirror finish to promote surface oxidation and carburization to occur in a more timely uh, time frame um, it's still not insignificant you know the, the, the longest um, exposure time which we did in this project was 8,000 hours which is a year um, anything longer and we're willing out of time for this project but we tried to do that to try and make it so it's actually the, the 
production processes is again representative of what actually occurs in the power plant so what we're actually testing is representative of what's going on there so you're generating huge amounts of data as you mentioned earlier how are you going about assessing that data and modeling all the results so we can maybe split this the project into two objectives really the first was to understand the carburization and oxidation that occurs to the surface of the steels initially and then the next was then uh, mechanical creep testing and so the effect of those layers on the mechanical creep properties um, so the project was split into two uh, really the first part of the looking at the development and oxidation of um, and carburized layers we had small coupons inserted into the autoclave that were removed at intervals um, and then we uh, metallurgically examined these to understand uh, how thick the oxide layer was and understand the morphology of the carburized layer uh, and we did that at two different temperatures to understand the severity the difference of temperature and the effect on severity in carburized layer depths really and then we then took the we, we also pre-carburized the pre specimens adjacent to those coupons and took them out um, at different intervals and mechanically creep tested them uh, up to a particular uh, creep strains, interrupted them and then uh, destructively examined them to understand what was going on in the microstructure um, and to compare the different microstructures from each other really. um, and we did most of that characterization at the University of Manchester um, using a, a lot of techniques so <laughs> We were using optical microscopy initially, uh, you know, some of the, uh, to, to understand the, uh, the oxide, and the, uh, we used nano hardness uh, to define the carburized layer depth. Because when you look at the um, micro micrographs of a carburized layer, you wouldn't know it was carburized initially. Uh, so uh, nano hardness is, is, is a technique that we've used successfully uh, because the uh, carburized layer actually elevates. The, the surface hardness and so that's a good technique to really register how deep and um, carburized layer it goes um, we also then use TEM to actually take site specific samples from within the carburized layer both from the coupons which haven't been pre-exposed to creep and the tested creep samples uh, to understand the microstructural phenomena that occurs uh, during carburization and then during creep uh, we looked at the different samples and different stresses and Different um, two different casts of, uh, of stainless steel as well to understand the cast to cast variation. Uh, we used um, X-ray diffraction as well uh, to understand how um, the lattice parameter. So it's actually how the change in the lattice parameter um, due to carburization, uh, and that actually resulted in finding that most of the carbon precipitates out as M twenty three C six carburizer. Surprisingly, doesn't locate. Uh, within the austenitic lattice in solution, uh, which is quite an interesting phenomenon that we saw. Aidan, when you were working to design these experiments and ensuring that they hit the objectives of the project and making sure that they actually reflect in-service experience, how confident are you looking at the results you've got at the moment that they actually reflect real world conditions and what really happens yeah good question we're always trying to accelerate the aging in the lab uh so, so a lot of that work has to come down to i guess comparison of microstructures and mechanical properties and whatever mechanical behavior you, you can get so micro harvest is one way of generating 
comparative information, small specimens in particular. Like I said, there's also we're working with the, the customer who, who actually operate the plant to understand what inspection data they've got and the ability to for them to, to share that information with the project. I don't know, Jack, how much information did you did you receive from the, the operators? Yeah, so um, the, as part of this work here, obviously we look at the non-radioactive um, pre-carburized samples, but you know, there is um, different work going on to look at X-surface test, testing of X-surface components, uh, and that all feeds in together uh, to provide plant with as much information as possible to, to make them have a, the best judgment as they can on what they how they operate their plant. We've talked a little bit about you being at university, about interaction with Jacobs, and about interaction with the customer. So I suppose this is where I ask, how's the benefit working for all sides? What does the project mean for the sponsor, for yourself, for your future? Um, how's it all going to fit together and how does everybody get the benefit of this? I mean, yeah, certainly for myself, that it, it, it afforded me the opportunities for some really accelerated learning. Um, I was obviously doing this PhD project when I was also working full-time as well. So it's been really hard work, a lot of weekends, a lot of nights. Uh, but to have this higher level of, uh, of learning um, and accelerated learning has been really useful. It certainly piqued my interest uh, into understanding microstructural phenomena and, and how this leads into structural integrity um, assessments and methods and, and stuff like that. In terms of the customer, EDF, they get additional data that they may wouldn't have actually received uh, through me doing this work and the additional um, extensive examinations which they may not have wanted to do. Um, and the University of Manchester, they, they, they get to collaborate more with, with, with several partners and I think overall uh, the partnership between everyone has, has worked really well and we would like to continue that in the future. Yeah, I certainly find that, well, this, this project's one example, we've got others as well where developing that mechanistic understanding is a benefit to the wider industry as well. We start to build, um, ultimately in terms of designing or assessing plant, but safe operations, the set of design rules or assessments that need to be applied, and effectively simple, simplified engineering assessments of the science that's going on, um, but, but by allowing sponsoring projects to, to develop that mechanistic understanding, we start to provide better mechanistic support to, to those methods, those assessment methods. Uh, and that, that can also help with, um, you know, if, when there is emergent issues on the plant or observations that, that suggest a change in mechanism, that there's building that, that capability of people to support that or be able to make engineering judgments based on the knowledge that's, that's been grown. In, in informing future design of components and, and future plants regarding not necessarily just nuclear but you know these sorts of knowledge and expertise gained is, is applicable across material science and, and into engineering applications so yeah I think well Bob Jacobs benefited from that and the customers from EDF Energy have benefited from that and the, the science community as well benefits from the, the research yeah um, I think obviously we're coming to this at quite an interesting time if I'd been speaking to you maybe a decade ago we might have been looking at some of the more the other applications of steel but obviously now after the latest 
energy policy documents, nuclear is firmly back on the table for the UK and other parts of the world. So obviously applications there, but also we've been seeing that high temperature is becoming more and more important in other areas. So alongside the nuclear aspects, there will be other applications for steels um, that involve really high temperatures. So where do you see the broader applications of this work being? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the key things that we've brought about this uh, is the surface environment creep interaction, which at the moment, no structural integrity assessment code um, actually accounts for. And with the new, um, as you say, the, the policy of the UK government and I suppose internationally, the desire to build next generation reactors at even higher temperatures, it really means that those, uh, the work here is, is really pertinent to the to those reactors, uh, they're going to have, these are going to operate within the creep regime. They're going to be operating within a particular surface environment that can induce environmental degradation. Uh, that can be life limiting, and so it's really to, to build on that the work that we've done. If we focus on the UK, the, the government's preference for a high temperature, a very high temperature gas reactor, uh, which is going to be moderated by graphite, the same similar to what the AGRs. And you'll be using a gas, but most likely helium gas, potentially, or potentially some other other, other constituent uh, mix, maybe with carbon dioxide or with neon, potentially. But also, therefore, to, to look at um, to the use of helium uh, as the primary coolant gas, we need to understand the effect um, of that on creep, but as well as fatigue and creep fatigue properties. But also, there's a potential for the combined degradation mechanisms of helium environment and um, impurities that may exist in there, such as seabed-bearing species, which may come from the graphite and may lead to carburization occurring. So the combination of a helium and carbon uh, carburizing uh, environment may be an issue. So for any new reactor, there needs to be a, a research and development program to understand the implications of that. Um, if operating at higher temperatures as well, we'll be looking at different materials than just the stainless steel that we're looking at in AGRs. Um, and so they will need to be explored as well. So there's plenty of opportunities to, to, to continue this further. Yeah, I guess it's not just fusion reactors. It's, um, it's not that again as well. It's not just fission reactors. It's fusion reactors as well. Uh, looking at similar environments, but well, similar coolant environments, but completely different um, degradation mechanisms potentially with the different neutron damage and uh, new materials and the like that are going to stretch the, the understanding we've already developed as a, as a community. Yeah, and again, as we move to the general drive to higher temperature processes to improve efficiency, you know, the, the, the creep degradation mechanisms are going to become far more important for, for, for life in components. Okay, so is this a, a call to arms to the iron and steel producers to, to come up with some new options that will help avoid issues in future as well. I guess it can be, but, but some of it's taking the, the, the learning from these sorts of work. I mean, Jack, one of the things you, you noticed in your work was the, the effect of manganese, which is there as a, an alloying addition in the, in the steels you were looking at. If you want to yeah, so one of, the, one of the outcomes of our work was understanding the 
vast variation on catalyzation and creep. And we found that um, in the steel grade with the higher manganese content, that actually had a greater oxidation and catalyzation resistance. Um, and this was put down to the manganese um, being diffusing into a chromium film that initially protects the steels from oxidation and catalyzation. So the, present, the more uh, manganese content in your steel will afford you better protection from these environmental degradation mechanisms. So that's a lesson learned that can be brought forward into the, 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 yeah, picking what type of uh, steel you, you want to put in plant. Yeah, so certainly if you want to stick with materials that are existing design codes and the like, you can choose still specify that steel, but, but as a sort of materials engineer working in design, you maybe want to push to suggest having uh, manganese content towards the top of the top of the alloy range to, to keep you within that specification, but then you know, then, then need to put put into practice the the learn lessons learned from, from this work to, to claim that benefit having that high manganese content. So actually tightening up your specification um, alloy specification to, to take those benefits. Okay, and that's all really useful information for for us to have going into the future is anything that will improve specifications to improve long-term safety. So this reflects on some work IOM3 did with the KTN and the Materials Design Exchange where um, designers quite often don't know all the information about how a material will act in service um, and will often work off data sheets that don't necessarily reflect what happens in the real world in a decade's time. Um, so how would you guys recommend sharing this information with designers and with the people who build the specifications so that we can do better jobs in future? I mean, from, a, from my point of view, from the PhD project, all of my work has been written into journal papers, and so that is out there um, in the in the domain for researchers to, to pick up and to, to read and to, to, to take lessons from. Yeah, certainly we're always keen to promote publication, open publication of the information we generate in, in partnership with the universities. We try and keep it that way. So that, that's that's one way of doing that is getting the information into the public domain. In terms of similar environments for example nitrogen embrittlement and obviously we hear a lot about alternate fuels having um, undesirable effects on on various metals um, how do you think that this work could be shared with other areas and be built on for um, other technologies so yeah, it certainly has relevance in the you know the petrochemical um, industry. You know, this I think there's potentially more shared interest in carbonisation. There's, there's quite a lot of journal papers on the effects of carbonisation. Maybe not three one six, but certainly three or four um, in that industry. I'm bringing it out, you know, four hundred and fifty degrees um, and having failures in of those pipeworks there. So I think again, it's about sharing what we've learned in open literature and going to conferences uh, maybe exploring other conferences than just specifically nuclear to try and share that experience and uh, to try and get feedback and try and create a community to, to discuss the options. Yeah, 
looking at um, well, potentially things like uranium carbide instead of uranium dioxide, which gives you more uranium per, per unit volume, so you increase the power density of the fuel. As we move to high temperature reactors, we'd like to move to stainless steel claddings, much like the AGRs are at the moment. Uh, but, it, but it made me think of that particular environment. You've got uranium carbide next to a steel, and the, the, this carburisation issue may, may affect the fuel cladding performance. So that's that's something that, that need, would need to be considered as, as part of future fuel developments. So that's something I've, I've picked up, and it's uh, yeah, we're working on a, a project on on that at the moment. So, so just trying to extend that to explore whether there is an issue. Well, I think there is an issue that, that needs to be considered. What does this mean for sort of how pure a fuel will need to be? How do contaminants affect the issues that you're seeing with embrittlement and carburisation? Uh, my, my view is comes down to surface engineering. So we're looking at, well, have to look at things like coatings to prevent interaction. I said earlier on, carburisation actually uses an engineering, surface engineering uh, process to deliberately harden the material. But we may have to look at other coatings to... to um, minimise those interactions or explore ways of reducing the interactions um, and in part we need to understand what they are and understand the mechanisms behind that because coatings brings in additional cost and uh, potentially other penalties or other degradation mechanisms that, that we may not immediately think of. On the day-to-day project, Jack, what come up that was completely unexpected? What blindsided you? What led to you standing in the corner swearing because it wasn't where you thought it was going to go? Um, some of the, many of the creep tests took longer than we thought they'd take. <laughs> um, and even the, the, the carburisation as well, it was initially that some of that took longer than we thought. And, you know, in a three-year, well, three-and-a-half years when it was a COVID, but three-year project when it was taking an extra six months to carburise, an extra six months to creep test, you soon, you soon get panicky about actually how much time you've got left to complete the characterisation that you so wish to do. Um, so yeah, that halfway through, you just you, you have to just calm yourself down and say, we'll get through it eventually. <laughs> yeah, some good lessons learned there. I just started someone else on a long-term creep test project, PhDs. I'm sure get them to talk to you for some yeah. advice as well. <laughs> You feel like you need to the, the, the creep test needs to be started before the PhD starts yeah. early, and then and you can do the, the, the stuff that you want. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Aidan, that's probably given you guys some um, some lessons to to work with for the for the next time you're taking on a PhD student. Yes, well, uh, in part we sort of recognise that. So. We have got another another member of staff who's, who's doing a PhD, just starting a PhD, but he's doing it part time, so it's going to take him six years in effect. So that buys us a bit more time to do these long term group tests. Rather than trying to do it in, in uh, <laughs> three or four years that yeah. Jack's done it. <laughs> what has the lessons has the project taught Jacobs for your work in plant life and decommissioning? Yeah, so in terms of lessons learned as a business uh, again I mean, it's improving relationships and stakeholders and communicating well between all of those people but it's also made us think about you know the sort of the laboratories set up we need how can we best use the equipment we've got or you know what sort of resource or yeah what sort of resource do we need to, to support the future reactors and make us think about some of the challenges a bit more again in terms of lessons learned in terms of 
staff time, like Jack, who's a PhD and working at the same time, is is, is very challenging. So that, that's something you know, I'm sure Jack's relieved to finish his PhD and finish his thesis now. But I guess there's lessons learned in, in, in actively managing his time better or, or the, the future people better in, in that, that sense. So Jack, what you yeah you mentioned that you were working and there were lots of weekends where you know it was it was tough for your career now what lessons have you learned about time management what tips would you give other students in similar positions and how did you manage to fit in things like conference attendance and all the other bits and pieces that we think of as more the typical postgraduate experience I think you, you really haven't got to be organised so I think putting everything in your calendar everything in your calendar making sure that you you know what you're doing I, it's strong when you need to say no that you can't attend a meeting so you don't have the time to send, to send that meeting or you know manage your, your, your meetings so they're all budged together and so it's just easier then you can have a day free in your calendar which you can go and do your microstructure analysis where you just need a free brain to think about things. In terms of conferences, well, I didn't really go on many, if any, over the PhD. Two years was in COVID, so <laughs> but if anything, COVID maybe helped in that sense, but didn't help in another sense, because I couldn't go to university to do some of those characterizations. Um, so I think my PhD has probably been a bit of a, it's been a tough one for that reason as well, that COVID definitely didn't help. You've had a paper published already on uh, on this research is there more to come yeah there's three there's three already been published okay so yeah i did no more they've, they've done three the first one was based on the oxidation and carburization kinetics and the two steels which we investigated um the second one presents the uh, mechanical creep test data um and the effects of cracking um on uh, mechanical creep performance uh, and the third one then looks into the microstructural phenomena uh, that occurs during creep within the carburised layers. Um, and so these three linked uh, papers and, yeah, uh, go and have a look at them, go and have a read. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We'll put links in the in the show notes for people to, to follow up on, on your research anyway. Um, and so has the thesis been submitted yet? Um, I'm just saying that it has been submitted. Um, I've had my I've just got to make some editorial corrections, and I'm going to be submit that then shortly. And Aidan, for you, the benefits of working with universities, giving you access to other pieces of technology and equipment, that must be hugely helpful for you guys as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, uh, I've been collaborating with universities for, for a number of years. And- yeah, the, the opportunities to run projects with universities, we get the, the input from some academics, we, we get to see uh, innovations or in, in both characterization as well as materials understanding and other equipment and, and people bringing different ideas to, to, to problems that you know, get outside of our, you know, I guess as an industry, we quite often sit in a silo and, and just, just look at what we do day in, day out and, and the information around that. But, but, interaction with universities enables us to, to get uh, you know, a wide set of opinions and, and views and, and yeah, different ideas which is which can be really helpful in, in uh, yeah, generating the 
understanding or, or bringing new techniques to, to work and start using um, density functional theory modeling to, to try and explain some of the mechanistic observations there to, to support some other projects. Uh, we couldn't have done that without universities using that, that expertise. In terms of next steps for you, Jack, where are you seeing your interests going next? So, I mean, the concept of my uh, thesis was the data we generated would feed into structural integrity um, assessment methodologies and see if they're suitable. And, and I think I'd like to, to, to understand a little bit more about that, really. Uh, so, my development, I think, would be interested in understanding those structural integrity assessment codes and procedures um, a little bit more. Um, but just for the short, the, the near term, anyway, I'm, I'm happy just to take it a little bit easy and just give me day job for a while. Do you see that more um, sort of application of the techniques you've learned to a wider range of material systems rather than steels in particular? Future generation materials could be you know, some of these new, new high temperature materials that are being developed. We're going to need data generating. See. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah, we need data sheets being produced out there, and if we're looking more at the surface environment creep interactions are going to be introduced into codes, and it's going to be a, a, a lot of work there associated with that. Um, so there could be there's a lot of interesting work from the perspective. Yeah, I guess potentially some of it's generating data in different temperature regimes to, to what already exists. Yeah, in, in different surface environments, different you know, different cast specific uh, materials. So yeah, there's lots. What else do I need to know about what you've been doing, where you're going next, and how it all makes a difference to industry? JCOS has been working uh, with EDF Energy now for over 10 years, looking at the surface environment creep interactions. And I think it is pertinent to, to say again the, the next generation nuclear reactors uh, will need to take into consideration at the, the surface environments that they're going to operate in. And the the creep interaction, as well as creep fatigue interaction, as well, uh, and having this knowledge base, being the the, the, uh, the UK having got the only people who have operated high temperature reactors, it, you know, we are the best place in the in the world to actually demonstrate uh, and operate uh, even higher temperature reactors. Uh, so I think it's it's key to recognise where the the knowledge is and, and, and who to go to to to, to do that work really. Yeah, some of the work's got to be around extending what we know and applied to the high temperature reactors that the UK has operated, the AGRs, but there's also experience in operating and providing research to support pressurised water reactors in the business because uh, the UK, well, the newest plants that will be operating in the UK will be pressurised water reactors, so not quite the same high temperatures, but they'll be the, you know, the, the heating point C the PWR will have a you know, 60 year life and again with fusion reactors proposed to be coming online that this again extending that research to, to different degradation mechanisms potentially similar degradation mechanisms but uh, with, with, in a slightly different environment this research this kind of things Jacobs have been involved with for, for a number of years uh, again supporting the UK community along with a number of other national laboratories, that university collaboration with industry, the likes of ourselves and, and potential operators and designers is, is what's, what's, what's needed, I think, to, that, that sharing of information and collaboration to, to really generate 
useful information. I guess one of the key messages is Jack's project's looked at material that's been in service for decades, taking material, representative material out of the plant and, and use that to understand existing problems. Um, and some of the messages from that are, okay, so we've, what have we learned? We've learned we can increase the manganese content within the alloy, particularly to improve that. So I think the real feedback to is when we come back to designing future plants is, you know, let's take the understanding we've generated on existing plant. Yes, processing's got the better of the materials and the alloys. We can make cleaner alloys, uh, which may change some of the responses, but let's take advantage of what we can. So that, that might be the, the high manganese. So it's, it's, it's that feedback back into future design. Um, yeah, so we need to generate data with maybe a, a refined alloy specification or a surface finish uh, specification that enables that knowledge and mechanistic understanding to actually be applied and, and, and the benefit taken is if we don't change the specification we still buy or procure materials and make components from the, from the same specification although we've chosen the higher manganese content we can't actually take that benefit of that improved corrosion resistance for example so that, yeah, there's a feedback to future designers and future materials engineers to, to generate information that will support taking the benefit and improving the efficiency of the plant that operates, potentially extending its life or, or getting more power out one way or the other. Thank you so much for coming along today and having a chat with me and explaining the research and the work that's been going on at Jacobs. Um, we've also got an article in Materials World this summer that looks at plant life extension. So please take a read of that. Um, you can access the zine through your membership login. And for those of you who aren't members, do think about getting hold of a copy of Materials World so you can read more about the work that's going on at Jacobs. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Um, thanks a lot. And thanks a lot, Aidan. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for taking the time to listen to this episode of IOM3 Investigates. Bye. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.